This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with USA Today columnist, author, and financial expert, Peter Dunn. Today, Peter shares what you can do to create a financially supportive culture in your school or district. Peter also shares the impact of finances on educator stress and retention, why the hardest years of a person's financial life are ages 47 to 53, and what you can do to help remove the burden of student loans from your staff. Hey, Pete, thanks so much for joining us today. I can't wait to hear about how you help educators live better lives by fixing their finances. But before we get to that, can you talk about yourself a little bit and who should be paying attention today? Uh, Thanks for having me, Eric. I I come from a family of educators. Uh, My wife is an educator. My sister's an educator. My brother-in-law's an educator. My mother was a a school nurse. My father drives a school bus now in retirement. So needless to say, uh, not only do I have a personal interest in this and a professional interest, but uh, I don't want to sleep on the couch at home. So I have a very, very, very big interest in educators. That's fantastic. So I know a lot of school leaders focus on the acts of schooling, right? Like instruction, classroom management, evaluations, of course, focusing on the students. There's a lot of attention placed on supports for teachers in this way, but work is only part of a person's life. They also go home to their families, their friends, Sometimes they work second jobs. Sometimes they look at their bank accounts. Now, nearly everybody believes that educators should be paid more. I'm sure you're in that boat. I am as well. But can you pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about what you're seeing in education right now that impacts educator well-being and how much of that is financially related? I think a lot of it is. Um, I, I think I think school administrators, respectfully, have lost control of the narrative of what it is to be an education for teachers. And they're playing so much defense as it relates to trying to get people in the door that they've stopped really telling the story and the glory of what it is to be part of a school community. And I I understand this, and and I think some of it has to do with the pandemic. But but if you think about how complex an educator's life is, let's, let's talk about the pandemic here for a second. I will speak for myself. I am not an educator, although arguably I could be considered a financial educator, but let's not split hairs. Uh, I remember in April of 2020, I was running my company. I was being a dad. I was being a husband. I was terrified. The, the economy had shut down. And by the way, I was tasked on top of all of that, which was in itself exhausting, to teach my son third grade mathematics, right? Because Parents were co-teachers in this time, and the responsibility that it was to help educate my son and and my daughter, for that matter, at the time, was nearly overwhelming. Now, if you think for a second, I I just described all the things that were overwhelming in my life, and then I said, oh, yeah, I've got to educate my kids. What were teachers going through? Because they had all of that, and then they're trying to uh, connect with students via fiber internet and oftentimes what felt like dial-up uh, internet. And so I think it's at that time on top of a lot of the social issues that found their way into board meetings and, and classrooms, I feel like the narrative has just run away 
from schools. And it's time to go back on offense and say, this has always been an amazing profession. Yes, we can't pay you a ton, but we can impact your life in ways that you can't even imagine. Yeah. So the the financial part of this, then I know on your website, you shared that 50% of teachers are likely to leave within two years due to financial anxiety. And you just mentioned salary. It's not great. It's not glorious. Nobody went into teaching for the, the pay. Is a salary increase the only way to alleviate that financial anxiety? Or is there more that can be done? Uh, there's a lot more that can be done. It, there, there's two types of professions as it relates to comp, right? Compensation. There's, there's, uh, we can pay a lot, but the benefits stink. Or there's, we can't pay a lot, but the benefits are great. I, I think in the world of education, there's an opportunity to have amazing benefits. And, and depending on what state you're in, the state teacher's pension can help contribute to that. Um, but Eric, to your point here, uh, is there more you can do other than just giving people a raise? Yeah, absolutely. The reason people want a raise is because they have financial complexity in their life. So this is a chicken or an egg thing. You can make a bigger impact and a more sensible impact by removing the financial complexity. And instead of giving people more money to partially address the financial complexity, use the benefits uh, budget that you have, which is often robust, to solve those problems. And I'll give you an example here. N nearly every teacher, when they start in the profession, shows up at their first interview saddled with student loan debt, right? They, they show up with tens of thousands of dollars of their past. And if they're a 22 or 23-year-old, they have no concept, respectfully, they have no concept of what that means and how it will impact them. If you're trying to attract great teachers and you're trying to win those hires, look them in the eye and say, here's what you're going to get on our district. We are going to help you systematically eliminate your financial past by leveraging the public service loan forgiveness program for your student loans. We are going to help you understand what it is to live a, a purposeful and fruitful financial life as an educator. And by the way, we're going to help you understand how your financial future will be taken care of when you're done teaching. So you're not just saying, oh, hey, do you want to be in our third grade classroom at one of our buildings? What you're saying is, here's what we have to offer you. Take care of your past, help you come to terms with your present. And by the way, we're going to show you how you can have a second life after your work career, because that's what teachers are able to do so many times. And is that is that happening based on your experience? Are those conversations go? What as I was as I was thinking through preparation for this, there's the retention aspect, right? Which is the I'm providing the right supports, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I also started thinking through what's it look like from a recruiting lens to use financial planning as part of your your strategy to get winning educators into your system. Yeah, and and. I'm going to back up a little bit here, Eric, if I can. Uh, I, I want to uh, humbly ask uh, those that are listening that while I am a financial expert, I am not an expert in education. So I, I'm giving you my perspective. Uh, it is not an authoritative perspective as it relates to how you recruit teachers. I just want to say that because I don't want people to think I'm getting out over my skis here. But here's what I think. I think if you're talking to someone about their career, especially a first-time teacher, and you're saying, hey, you know, are you excited about being in the world of education? What scares you about that? 
What concerns you? What, what, what hesitations do you have? And naturally the answer is, Eric, you know what they're going to be. It's like, well, this is always what I want to do. I know I'm not going to make a great living, blah, 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 all these sorts of things, which are all legitimate concerns for anyone starting their career. But if you're able to look that person in the eye and say, I hear you, and here's what we're going to be able to do to address that. So that way you can just focus on practicing your love of education with the kids and the members of our school community. Like, it's weird when you educate someone about what it is to have a career at the beginning of their career, they don't know what they don't know. I, I, I think about my first couple of years in the financial business, uh, they're cringe-inducing. Like I had no idea what was going on. But if you're able to ask the questions that sort of suss out those concerns, you can actually create some of the stability at the beginning of the relationship as opposed to being reactive when someone comes to you and says, I just don't know if I can do this anymore because now my student loans are creeping up. And uh, so, so I think, it again, it's about the narrative and it's about going on offense, about being aggressive, about recruiting. And you don't have to throw big bonuses and big starting pay uh, amounts at these folks. You can tell a better story. Yeah, I, I remember my first year. So when I started teaching, I don't know the exact amount anymore. I made maybe $32,500, which to me was a lot of money. So I'm thinking, you know, I, I paid my own way through college, very humble upbringing, which has instilled a lot of things in me, but I was, I was making $32,000 a year. That's amazing. So you have that mindset of a new teacher versus I'm a veteran, maybe 10, 15 years. I'm more established. I have, I have more than I'm paying for. I have kids. So I wonder with those new teachers fresh out of college, how important is it for them in their own mind to start financial planning versus, hey, I've made it. I have a job. It's a full-time job. I'm making now it's 40 some thousand versus that, again, 15-year veteran maybe that's thinking about changing. Uh, yeah, they're totally different situations. I'm glad you called that out there. And, and let's address them separately, right? Um, with, with the first-year teachers, the early teachers, I, again, you have to allow them to voice what could become an impediment to them staying in the profession. Get them to voice it so that you can show them that, you know what, we have a plan for that. We actually have a plan for that. And that's what the, here's what this looks like. Because otherwise, they may assume that they're, they're weird and they're the only person that has that concern. I, we've all sat in an audience uh, at a presentation and sometimes we get upset when people ask questions because it's just a person who wants to raise their hand and talk. But oftentimes, you'll have someone voice something and put it into words that was a concern of yours, and you're so thankful that they put words to it, right? Because then you're able to hear it. I think that's the, that, that's the case for first-year teachers. Now, let's say that this whole idea that you and I are discussing today is, is appealing and interesting. And you're like, okay, great, but I hire five teachers a year. Meanwhile, I've got uh, a couple hundred uh, if not a couple thousand teachers I got to deal with on the other side who've been here for 10 or 15 years. You're, you're talking about a financial culture shift in that regard, which is a lot harder. But I'll tell you this, what, one of my favorite things about financial planning that, that I've noticed over the years is, and back in the day when I used to do individual financial planning, it was that I could be talking to a high income earning surgeon who is pre-retirement, so five years from retirement. And I could look at their financial situation. And oftentimes, Eric, the math wasn't working. They weren't going to be able to retire because they had taken on too many obligations. Yet, 
the next day, I'd meet with two teachers, one being like the athletic director and one teaching at the elementary school, you know how these things go, right? And and they were going to have a beautiful retirement. And by the way, they were also going to retire 10 years earlier than the surgeon. And so uh, part of this too is to, to begin to get your educators to talk about their parents' retirement and their grandparents' retirement. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, I'm, I'm in my 40s. Uh, my retirement will be so vastly different than my grandfather's retirement. He, he worked for GM uh, for 32 years, was retired for 31 years before passing away. And my grandma lived for another seven years. So that is to say that General Motors paid my family, the Dunn family on 30th Street in Speedway, Indiana, 70 years, 70 years, right? I think as people think about their parents' and grandparents' retirement, especially folks middle-aged like me, um, it starts to feel impossible. You, you start to fill in the blanks, and, and you just don't even see how it's possible. And I think a, a good school administrator, a good uh, group of administrators can come in and say, let's talk about this. Let's look at the complexity of this and, and set a plan for you in the future. Unfortunately, Eric, uh, administrators are so terrified of losing teachers, they don't even want to stoke retirements because they because they want to keep them. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I never once thought about, as an administrator, I'll go back and, and so I was in a, an admin for about four years. There was not one time that I can think of where financial well-being of my people crossed my mind because, again, I was so focused on the school, on the leadership. I was focused on the people, but I wasn't focused on what it looks like for them outside of school other than, you know, I don't want to keep you too long in meetings. I know you've got busy kids. Like I was thoughtful about that. I was never thoughtful about the fact that their finances are impacting them as people. Yeah. And I have an unsettling statistic, in fact, for you that every time I see it, it's because I'm approaching a particular age, right? So the, here's the stat. The hardest years of a person's financial life are ages 47 to 53. You never see it coming. You never see it coming. And by the way, are these not the pillars of your school buildings? These 47 to 53 years old, all the institutional knowledge exists with them. They are the role models. They are, they're, they're everything. Guess what? They're hurting worse than anybody. They're, they're hurting worse than the 26-year-old that can't afford their rent that well. Uh, and, and here's why, because it seems like a mystery at this point. But the reason is, if they had children at traditional childbearing ages, you know, whether it's a man or a woman, uh, those kids are going to be in college, if not just freshly graduated. The educator's health is going to be uh, changing to the point that they'll have more health expenses. The parents of the educator who's 47 to 53 years old will be going through some medical things and financial things. And so they are sandwiched between caring for aging parents and trying to launch young adult children, and it is a nightmare. You, you hear about the phrase midlife crisis, and it's, you know, it's a cultural thing that we all, we all understand, but we can't put our finger on it. It's what I just described. It's when you're getting hit from every single angle, and that's why when, 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 uh, an administrator looks up one day and sees this weird labor crisis within their school district or uh, uh, oh, strange morale 
in a particular building. It's because of stuff like this. Now, I, I, it is maybe worth noting, and I, you know this as much as anyone, and I know your listeners know this. Isn't it strange how you go in one school district and each building has its own complete vibe, its own culture, and some of the leaders in those buildings are able to navigate these things well. Others, let's say you've got a really young administrator in that building. They don't know that that's a thing. They don't know that their 50-year-old teachers are going through everything. They have no concept of that. All they think is, oh, this 50-year-old teacher is on the higher end of the pay scale. They should be fine. They're not. They're in a worse spot than the people on the lower end of the pay scale. Interesting. I had no idea. And I'm, I'm approaching that as well. So I'm like, oh, no, what's in my future now? <laughs> no, it's, it's weird, right? So again, I, I'm in the financial planning world. Of course, I'm preparing for my retirement. But what I'm really preparing for is to be 47 to 53. Both my kids will be in college, right? I'm closer to the end of my career than beginning of my career. I'm dealing with my parents' stuff. So it, it is such, I feel like I've just unleashed the secret of the financial planning world to you that, that no one really talks about that one. Uh, what they do talk about are, are things like Parent PLUS loans, right? Those are loans that parents take on. Uh, on behalf of their kids. And it turns out, Eric, that's related to this conversation too. Because if you're an educator and your wages are what they are, you probably can't effectively fully fund your children's education. So they are going to take on student loans. And you may be forced, and I'm using air quotes, which is always good to be an audio podcast. They're forced to take on student loans on behalf of their children. And, and that makes the problem even worse. Yeah. So how, in your experience, how many schools provide adequate or appropriate amounts of financial supports to their staff? Is it rare? Is it more common than I think? I don't think it's more common than you think. I think it's sort of the next thing. I, I think it's, uh, inevitably, there are certain schools that stand out. I don't want to get into like five-star schools. I, I'll be honest, I don't understand any of that. So, But I will just say there's, there's schools that clearly stand out and there's school districts that stand out that have figured this out. We're fortunate to work with some of them, right? I mean, that, man, they, you know, they got an on-site clinic, they got a wellness center. And so they're looking at the health side of the same problem, whereas we're talking about the financial side. Here, here's, and I say this with respect, here, here is the financial relationship between schools and their, and their teachers over the last two decades. Hey, we have some 403B vendors they're going to be in the cafe, the, the employee or the teacher lunchroom, teacher break room. Go talk to them. You'll notice it's them because they've got a table skirt on one of our tables and they'll be able to help you. And, and, and these well-meaning folks that are, are setting people up with 403Bs, they're not the villain here, right? It's just that's the dynamic of a financial relationship, which is in itself unhelpful. Yeah. So what, what is helpful then? I know you've, like, I'd like to, to dig in a little bit into this. So we know the traditional supports aren't resulting in a, a decrease in burnout, decrease in anxiety. In fact, it's increasing. We have teachers who are leaving the classroom at alarming rates. The ones that are staying are approaching that 47 to 53. So what, what are some things that you help schools with specifically that help with that financial anxiety for other educators? First things first, and let's be very practical, it's about getting student loans forgiven. It's about getting student loans forgiven. So at your money line, we, we've within the functionality of our software, we have the ability to, in aggregate, in mass, help educators get student loans on track to forgiveness. 
So last year alone, 2022, tens of millions of dollars of student loans were put on track to forgiveness via our program for our, our clients in the K-12 space. And the impact that makes is insane. The average amount of student loan debt forgiven through the program, which has a terrible reputation, which we can talk about here in a second, is north of 90,000 American dollars, $90,000. We had a school custodian in one of our client districts who had $117,000 of student loans forgiven last year, had no idea the program existed, saw a flyer in the break room when he was cleaning the break room, gave us a call. This gentleman's life changed by six figures, six figures overnight. We were able to by the way, by overnight, that's a little bit much. It takes a couple months, right? But we were able to, to shift this person's life. So not only did they not have the, he hadn't have the massive payments anymore, but he was also able to uh, never have to worry about those again. So that's one thing, uh, student loan forgiveness. Uh, another thing that we see, and uh, we get a lot of emails from teachers who say, hey, I have two kids. We're about to have another kid. Uh, my fear is, the best thing to do is to leave teaching uh, because we've seen other people do it. Is there a way financially for me to remain teaching and still raise the family I want to raise, right? Now, that feels like a lifestyle question. That feels like a parenting question. But I'll tell you what, Eric, when all else fails, if you can't make the math work because you've never tried that before, you're just going to stay home. You're just going to stay home. So there's a lot of teachers. I, this, I'm getting I'm a little ahead of myself here, but I, I believe this. There are teachers that by default just stop teaching because they don't know that they can financially make it work to keep teaching. And, and that's a problem. Um, but I think overall, if I, again, if I want to probably look from 30,000 feet down at this problem, I would say this. What schools struggle to do is to view the teachers and the staff as equal stakeholders within this entire situation, right? So if you, if you think about every sign on every school, there's a, my kids go to a school where there's like a sign board where they go out and change the letters and occasionally the, the seniors within the district go and rearrange the letters and cause chaos, but you know what I'm talking about, right? So, so you, you think about this, it's like, we're a five-star school, our kids are the best, like this. It's like, at what point in time does a district just say, we're the best school around to teach? We are the best school around to teach. And I, I think, I, I never seen anybody do that, ever. And we live in this space. We live and work for this. We have dozens of clients in this space. And, and very rarely do you see them say, hey, if you're going to be in teaching, or if, if you're out at a, a job fair at a, a local university trying to recruit teachers from the education school, why can't it just be, I just want you to know that teachers stay in our district. Here's the average tenure. Here's what we do for them. We get their student loans forgiven. Uh, on track the first day to sign up, like it's there for the taking. Someone can do it. And I think it should be everyone. Yeah. We talk a lot about how the student experience is driven by the teacher, by the educator, by the custodial experience. And that's just, it's forgotten so often because the focus has always been on the students. You can't ignore the fact that the student experience is driven by the adult experience within the building. And a lot of people forget it. Yeah, and, and so now I'm really talking about something that I don't understand well. I think that's why teacher unions and, and the relationship with schools can be so dynamic. 
in a good and a bad way is because some school districts aren't forthcoming enough about what they're doing for teachers. Maybe they have well-meaning ideas, but they're not voicing them publicly. And so, so you're, you're seeing these, these teachers unions voice these things, which, by the way, if the school district was better at marketing to the teachers, you maybe avoid some of the problems there. But if you, I mean, you're in the world, right? You are in this world as deep as anyone, Eric. And, and we, we dance on the outskirts of this world to support it. But I'll say if you go to the random person that's not really involved with education and you say, okay, talk to me about the narratives going on in our schools today. Uh, you're he- you're not hearing anything about teachers' lives. You're hearing about teachers' work, what teachers are able to teach and not teach. You're hearing about kids and you're hearing about social issues, but you're not hearing about uh, teachers. In the private sector, just, just so you know, because we have hundreds of clients in the private sector, the thing everyone is talking about is employees and employee engagement. Employee engagement is the thing, and it has been for about a decade and a half. It just hasn't caught up the K-12 through schools yet. That's a really interesting perspective, and you're spot on. And I've never thought about to that extent where outside of education, the thing is always the people that are working, the employees. In education, the thing is always the students. Again, we're forgetting that, that middle ground, the fact that the educators are the ones that provide that experience. So you, I want to go back just a little bit for the, the teacher loan forgiveness, the social, what, what's the name of the program again, specifically? So, so we call it PSLF because we love to save time and not pay, say public service loan forgiveness. It started in 2010 and it's, a, it's a, I wouldn't say it's controversial, Eric. I, I would say it's misunderstood and maligned, which is a fun word to use. Uh, basically, People have not had a lot of success with the program. There was a report that suggested that uh, the first year that people were eligible for forgiveness, which was actually 2020, because it's 120 payments a person needs to make in order to qualify for forgiveness, 98% of people who applied were declined. And you're hearing that and you're like, boy, I don't want to be involved with that. But you do. It's just people don't understand it. So here's how the program works. A, anyone who works for a 501c3 or a public entity like a school district, if they uh, are on income-based repayments, right, income, IBRs, uh, and there's a couple other versions too uh, of repayment systems, and they make 120 payments while employed in one of those types of organizations, at the conclusion of that 120th payment, any balance that's left over on their student loans will be wiped out, gone. And so here's here's something that's sort of wild about this. And in the time we're speaking right now, and I hate to evergreen your show, or not evergreen your show here, but it is April of 2023. I know for decades people will listen to this very episode of your podcast. However, April of 2023 is an interesting time because that is to say people have not had to make student loan payments for three years Interest rates are 0% on student loans. Your balance is not going up. You don't have to make a student loan payment because of the pandemic. So it's now the 37th month, actually. Those 37 months, Eric, all count towards the 120 payments, even if you didn't make a payment. Yes, big wow, exclamation point wow. That is to say that 
there are so many people in school districts right now that are so much further towards PSLF attainment than anyone would possibly imagine, and they haven't paid a thing. Now, naturally, there's going to be people listening to this that go, that's amazing. Seems somewhat unfair because what about the persons that made payments during this time? Guess what? They will get those payments refunded if they qualify for student loan forgiveness. It is so misunderstood, and it is a powerful tool. Uh, we, we have all been to school board meetings. Right? We, we, we have all been there. I spoke at one uh, like three weeks ago. Let me tell you what it feels like when we're given the report, the, the you know, superintendent's given the report about teachers and benefits and what they're doing. And I get to stand up there and I get to say something like, in the last 12 months, based on the benefit selection that Dr. So-and-so made, in aggregate, we have increased the net worth of your educators by $4 million this year by forgiving student loans, getting student loans on track to forgiveness. You want to talk about an impact. You want to talk about something that makes the local paper. You want to talk about something that you go back to your teachers and you say, hey, why don't you be part of the $4 million next year? Why don't, why don't we do some storytelling around this? Um, it's massive. That's huge. So you told the story about a custodian that had six figures. So it's not just teachers. I'm familiar with the teacher loan forgiveness, which is you working in like a Title I school, for example. This is not connected to that. This is different. Is that right? You know, it's different. Yeah, it's um, this is literally any 501c3. We work with a lot of uh, nonprofit healthcare systems too, big, big healthcare systems that whatever state you live in, you, you know the names of them their employees qualify too. You just have to be a full-time teacher. Pardon me, full-time employee. Equivalent of a full-time employee. Uh, have the right sort of repayment plan. And uh, the, the other aspect of this, Eric, is we have to train. Our, our team will train the administrators of what their role in this is because there's paperwork. Of course there's paperwork. The federal government's involved. So um, unfortunately, some of the declinations uh, that occur are because the administrators fill out the forms wrong. And so we do some education around how to do that correctly. I was just going to ask, is that something that, that school leaders can just talk to their staff about, fill out on their own? But it sounds like 98% declination. I love that word, by the way, 98% declination rate previous. And then now, if, if and when people don't go through you, it sounds like there's a, less of a chance of it going through. Is it, is it difficult? Is it complicated? It is complicated, and, it, and I don't want to say their only choice to go through it. They can do it themselves. I, I would say the problem is when you have a teacher that is trying to figure out whether they qualify, because there's certain types of loans that qualify. We have actually have like a, a student loan czar on staff, and that is her job, and she, she's shockingly brilliant about student loans. Um, so we just run it through her. She's our, she's our dictionary. She's our Google. If you're trying to answer these questions about the what to fill out, that's where it gets difficult. Uh, it's like anything. If things are going well, if it's a standard case of student loan forgiveness, an administrator's staff can fill it out. But the reason you hire professionals are not for things to go well. It's when things don't go well. And, and that is the majority of the time when you hear a 98% declination rate. Sure. Makes sense. So I know you have three pillars when you work with schools. One is eliminate their financial past, which is debt. That's We just talked about that. Another one of your pillars is come to terms with their financial present, and that's essentially budgeting. What Can you talk about that work a little bit that you do? The biggest mistake anyone makes in their financial life is housing. 
it is the largest expenditure on any monthly basis. If you're buying a home, it's the largest amount of interest you will ever pay. It's the biggest purchase you're ever going to make uh, for most people, right? Me being one of those people as well. Uh, so the margin for error is pretty slim. Unfortunately, bad housing selection is what also takes teachers out of teaching. They get themselves in these systemic jams where they say, oh my gosh, we bought this house. We thought we we're going to grow into the payment. I don't know how that works. Two or three years, we think we're, we're going to be able to figure this out. And they don't because education wages don't increase that much. And then this, their solution isn't, oh, I better sell my house and move somewhere else. It's, I better leave the teaching profession. So helping educators make wise housing decisions is vital to retention. It's vital. I, again, I, I was a financial planner for a very long time. I still live in this space. Um, it's wild how little financial planners talk about housing, given that it is one of the biggest, if not the biggest problems in most people's life. Uh, it is part of my financial plan to have my student loans paid off before, or not my student loans, pardon me, my, my mortgage paid off before my kids get to college. Because while I have pre-funded college funds for them, that additional cash flow that I, that I will have because my student loans will pay off are, is part of the financial plan. Uh, and so what we do is we, we help educators understand these things, even things like car payments. You know, how much car can I afford? The dealership says I can do this. If people call us on the way to the dealership, we're going to give them the real answer and give them something to stand on as they're negotiating with people who negotiate 20 car deals a day. Meanwhile, this is the first time in a person's life they've ever done it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Whenever I log into my bank, I get this notification. You've been pre-approved for a $45,000 car. Like, I have, I have no interest in that. But that is a pull for a lot of people, the ability for them to fit in with their peers, to make it look as if they have maybe more money than what they actually do. If you're a teacher, perhaps that's not the best decision for you. How, how explicit do you get in those conversations with educators about house, about cars, about like, do, do you calculate this out, show them a spreadsheet? How, how do you have those hard conversations? Yeah, so we have a team um, uh, that... that talks to these folks on a regular basis, on the phone, email, live chat, whatever. And that, that's their job. They're all over the country. They work for us and talk to educators all the time about these things. So Eric, the, the answer here is, first off, we lead with empathy. If, if, you're, if you've got a hang up and you feel like you're martyring your career to teach kids because you don't make a lot of money, the last thing you want to be is judged, right? You, don't wanna, you want someone to be like, come on, dummy, figure this out. What, what you want to hear is someone that's talked to an educator before. So that, that's a big part of this. But then you make, you make an interesting point. Someone pulls up in the school parking lot, and they've got a brand new car, and it's amazing. And that person is celebrated culturally within the school. Like some people are jealous or whatever, but maybe like, wow, uh, Mary, I love your new car. But they don't really know Mary's story. They don't necessarily know what Mary's partner does for a living. They, they don't. They, they, so it starts to break down. And by the way, this happens at factories too. Just, just It happens everywhere. Um, so I think that's part of this conversation, right? right. Um, the other side of this, as you think about how teachers fund their lives, I'd love to talk about second jobs for a second because it is both true and a cliche to say a lot of teachers have second jobs. It's the summer job. It's the it's the you know the the history teacher that starts a landscaping company. 
and uh, during the summers, and you got all these, they're great stories. Now, here's where they scare us a little bit, and this is where they should scare administrators. If someone takes on a second job in order to just fund their lifestyle or to add more money to the pot of money every month, they can never quit the second job. They're more likely to quit the first job and get another first job. Okay, because they become dependent on two jobs and the income on two jobs. If an educator gets a second job, a, works at the mall during the holidays, and you awkwardly get to see your students, right? If they do that, and it's for a very specific purpose to pay off this loan, to fund my emergency fund, to do this, then when they quit that job, they're fine because that job had a job financially. The scariest thing we see with second jobs or moonlighting for educators is when it's just more money in the checking account that then creates lifestyle creep, and then the person can never quit the second job. All they can do is leave education and go do something else. And so you shouldn't be, as an administrator, you shouldn't be against second jobs. What you should do is you should educate your people on the, the financial aspects of having a second job. Interesting. Again, something I never thought about before when leading people. And we had a, a counselor that worked at Kohl's, right? And it's, it's just part of what she did. And she always did it. She had done it for a long time. And I believe she's still in education. But what, what's interesting too about that is what, what does that mean for that person's personal time, for their private time? What's it mean for their relationships? What's it mean for their willingness to, to put in 100% in their first job? Because they are exhausted, because they're they're tired, they're stressed, all of that. Yeah, especially if they need that second job to to sustain their life. So then you want to talk about resentment. You know what I've learned in doing this for a very long time is that understandably people can vicariously blame their employers for their own financial problems. Right? They can say, "Man, I'm struggling. I'm stressed. I cannot make my payment when I want to make my payment." I don't get paid enough. This school system stinks. That's not a big leap there. I think you've probably actually heard people say that. Um, so if that naturally occurs in every workplace and it's the lack of communication that often leads to those ideas, the whole idea of changing the narrative and being the employer for great teachers, what it does is just honest gets out in front of those things and it, and it, and it, and it gives voice to them. I think, uh, and again, we, we, we work with some amazing school districts that do this well. I think administrators are so terrified uh, of just public discourse around education and teachers and libraries and books and everything else that they're exhausted. They're on defense and they're, they're not being bold enough to, to view the teachers as their primary stakeholders which is tough to do because in education, all you ever hear is that it's about the kids. But I can tell you in the business world, we serve hundreds of thousands of people through their employers. We have hundreds of clients. My number one priority are the people in this building right now because I know if they're okay, then everything else will be okay. And while some administrators might feel that way, they might think that's neat, nod their head, the communication doesn't really track to that. Mm hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to that stat that 50% of teachers are likely to leave within two years due to financial anxiety. 
And if we know that we're communicating the positives, we're, we're supporting people in their financial journey, in addition to supporting people as people, as the valued, meaningful people that they are, to me, that seems like a recipe to increase teacher retention, to reduce burnout, because they're getting support from all sides, the financial side, hopefully the school, the instructional side, but also them as people, them as human beings. Yeah. You know, one of the weird things, and we talked about the culture in each building, which I, again, I love, I think it's one of the most curious things I go into a building. I'm like, Oh, I get it. Is that if there are programs like this, I mean, the biggest cheerleader is going to be the head of that building. And if the head of that building's financial life is so different, or let's say they're gifted financially and they understand all this stuff, you may not actually get the support you think. Maybe they're, maybe you got a, a, a principal and his wife is an executive at some company, so they're financially fine. So this principal doesn't understand how different his life is than the educators who maybe are single or have more modest incomes. So you see that a lot. Or that if you're good with money and you're an administrator or you're the superintendent and you're good with money, um, you may not appreciate the behavior challenges that come with dealing with money. So here's what I recommend for those people because I happen to be good with money. And so when I have to empathize with all the people we serve, here's what I have to do. Eric, I don't always make the best nutritional choices. I don't always exercise when I should. So when I think about talking to people about some behavior challenges and, oh, it's just a matter of using resources better. Okay, I stop thinking about money because I've figured that out. I have to think about counting calories. I have to think about the nutrition choices I make, and it puts me in a better mindset. So for your administrators out there who are enjoying this conversation but happen to be good at money and are struggling to empathize with the behavior choices that some of these teachers make, oh, they go to Starbucks on the way to school every day. Stop. That's not the problem. Think about the behavior challenge in your life, because we all have one, relationships, faith, whatever. Uh, think through that lens, and I think you'll understand this a little better. I know your, your third pillar, so we've talked about debt, talked about budget. Your third pillar is retirement, right? Preparing for the future. What, what does that support look like that you provide schools? I think it's just a matter of level, say, level setting and viewing successful retirements as a successful moment for the employer. I think successful businesses retire people, right? I, I think so often, and I'm going to talk about business here for a second, and then I'll get back to education. The business world, we ask employ employees to care about the goals and financial objectives of the employer. And then unless we turn around and say, oh, and we also care about your long-term financial outcome, it's sort of a disingenuous relationship. It, it doesn't seem fair. In, in schools, again, depending on your state and what's going on with the state pension, first of all, it's hard to understand. Like it's hard to talk intelligently around the state pension system and no matter what state you're in. But I, I love, I, I go to a lot of school kickoff meetings where we launch our benefit and I get to talk about it at the you know, it's like in July or August and everyone's in the high school gym and it's a, it's a lot of fun. But oftentimes they'll talk about retirements at those things. So-and-so retired last year. And I love the schools that celebrate it and make it something to celebrate. Whereas other schools sort of say it in passing because they don't want to be too suggestive and have a bunch of people retire. A, a healthy workforce celebrates retirement. And then everyone sort of uh, says, I want that to be me. I'm going to stay here so that can be me. It's, it's the schools that refuse to really acknowledge them and, 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 and really celebrate them 
those are the people that the younger part of the workforce looks at it and goes, what am I even doing this for? No one even cares. So, I mean, this entire conversation, by the way, has been about culture. That's, that's the nature. And I, I think it's top-down culture of understanding that if you want people to be engaged and you want them to stay, you have to over-communicate what you're willing to provide to them in a really uh, genuine way. And then providing it. And then, like you said before, telling stories about it because those stories, the impact proves not just communicating, you're not just doing it, but this is impacting people in a real way. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, We live in the financial wellness world or I live in the financial wellness world. And so oftentimes a company might hear something we talk about or somewhere else read something in the paper. And by paper, I mean internet. And they will, they'll be like, oh, hey, we're going to have financial wellness week. And so they have financial wellness week and they have a webinar and hand out a brochure and it makes zero impact because it doesn't become part of the culture. You're just literally putting something out there that someone could Google and it's just like, oh, this is a campaign. Campaign's over. It's been 168 hours. Is everyone financially well? It has to be a commitment to, to weaving it into your culture. Um, most school districts we work with, we've worked with for years and years and years, and it starts to feel real. It starts to feel authentic. It doesn't feel like a pet project um, because it is it is a commitment. And and so to 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 your question, I think a lot of times when when schools look to do something like this, um, it can't be something they're trying. It has to be something that they believe in, and that uh, we can help them see the math of it all. And, and, and it becomes part of who they are permanently. Yeah, that's great. So a couple of finishing questions, Pete, and this has been a fantastic conversation. If you can go back and give yourself advice before you began financial planning, what would that advice be? I understand money, but 22 years old to 28 years old, I did not put as much as I should have for retirement. And what's weird about this, and actually goes to earlier in our conversation It's your very first contribution that you ever put away for retirement that is more powerful than any other contribution because it has the longest period to grow. So what I'm telling you, Eric, for six years, I underfunded and all six of those years are more important than any year that followed. And so that from a practical nature, from a financial standpoint, that, that, that was a big deal. And then the other thing, and this is maybe more of a business world stuff, but I think there's some application too to education is I always thought that if I made more money and had more professional success, that it would take care of the personal finance challenges I had at home. And so you chase these professional successes to solve these problems at home. And what I have learned, it doesn't work that way. Uh, You have to fix home so you are better able to, to make good with the resources that come available with your professional successes. You remember the uh, remember back in when there were malls and you'd go to a mall and there'd be a successories kiosk that had real trite sayings. Uh, there was a poster that said uh, something to the effect of success equals uh, is when uh, preparation meets opportunity, right? Something to that effect. I, I view our financial lives that way uh, of like, you better take care of your financial life so you become more resourceful so that the resources that do come in get used better. If you focus on more resources, like going to get a second job as a teacher and you're not exactly resourceful, you're just wasting those resources. So I I would say those would sort of be my early career lessons. Yeah, that's wise. 
What's one action or strategy you hope every listener takes away and applies to their own world, their own building, their own job? Uh, I would stop using marginal salary differences as a way to tell your story of why you're the better place for a teacher to teach. I mean, it's not gross to say teachers' wages in, in many ways are a commodity. You know, a, a 2% difference or 3% difference, you can tell yourself, oh, it makes a big difference. It doesn't. It's about telling the story of how, what the impact you're going to make on that educator's life throughout their time in your district. Um, so that's the takeaway is that stop playing defense, stop playing defense. And, and by the way, I hate, I don't like the word hate that much. I hate that educators have been put in the situation they've been put in over the last few years. I I think it's awful. I, I told you earlier, I'm related to most of the educators in the world. Uh, I, uh, I hate it. I, I, I think it's the grossest, one of the grossest things we've done as a culture and a society is we vilified teachers and educators who are trying to get people to experience new thoughts and ideas. I just, it's so sad. Um, so we have to play defense at board meetings, right? Like we feel like we're playing defense all the time. You can go on offense to tell the story of what it is to be an educator and the impact it can make on a community and the clients of ours and, and the partners that we have that have done that well, oh, it, it just looks and feels completely different. And I think that that is possible for every single school district. You just have to have the courage to do it. Yeah, that's great. And what's one celebration you've recently experienced? Oh, boy. Um, the good thing about what we do for a living is literally every day uh, we get a celebration. So when we help our individuals with, um, with, with our coaching team, those individuals can can leave us feedback. And so we have a Slack channel, which is our communication platform here. So every day, five or six times, we get to see the impact we've made on someone's life. And it really is the best part of the job. And it's something of like, I didn't want to call. I finally decided to call. And I feel relief I've not felt about my finances for the first time in seven years. The, the joke around here, here at Your Money Line, is that we have someone on our marketing team write all of these, but we don't. They just... They're, they just feel that way because, I don't know, Eric, I don't know what area of your financial life has that behavioral barrier or roadblock. And have you ever made your way over that roadblock and the relief that you feel does feel like it's in a Hallmark card, right? I mean, it does feel so scripted. Uh, so the biggest victory we have is every single day when I read these things. I could read some to you right now that get a little weird, but uh, we love it. No, it's fantastic. And if administrators want to have more of those stories, what's the best way of them reaching out to you? Yeah, just go to yourmoneyline.com. Um, there on our site, we, we do a lot with K-12 schools. So you just find the K-12 section. We have specialists in that area, former educators, former administrators mm -hmm. uh, that, that speak your language and, and can understand what you're dealing with. And then uh, at, you can also read the success stories of some of our highlighted school district partners on there. Actually, I think you can read the story uh, or watch a video on the custodian that I mentioned yeah. earlier. Uh, so yourmoneyline.com. Well, thanks, Pete. Thanks so much for joining us today. And for the work that you're doing with educators and their financial anxiety, I know that impacts most educators. So the work that you're doing is certainly appreciated. Thanks, Eric. It was a pleasure to be with you. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day.